What's the difference between religion and relationship? Pastor Xavier Reese has the simple truth. Jesus warned about the leaven of the Pharisees, which was the sin of hypocrisy. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, the old sin lifestyle. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Are you part of the church of Jesus or are you part of the church of the world? Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. National pride becomes noticeably more evident during the international sporting events such as the World Cup or the Olympics. Everyone wants the bragging rights to say, we're better than you. But today, Pastor Xavier examines an even more important competition, with all eternity at stake, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. Join us in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, for today's important simple truths. Let's listen. Jesus has been teaching the crowds and his disciples as he continues to announce salvation in the present kingdom of God and his soon return and the second coming for judgment. Jesus, here in verses 18 through 35, continues with the theme of the kingdom of God through repentance, revealing three truths about the church. First, the corruption of the church, verses 18 through 21. The corruption of the church. Secondly, the proportion comprising the church in verse 22 to 30. Thirdly, the distinction of Israel from the church in verse 31 to 35. The corruption of the church comes first as the truth, 18 through 21. Notice in 18, the kingdom of God had arrived and the church is part of the kingdom according to Jesus. Then he said, what is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it to? The kingdom of God is a key theme. Jesus has been speaking about it all along. Listen to him. In 960, he said, let the dead bury the dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. In 962, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. 10.9, and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. In 10.11, the very dust of your, of this, your city shall cling to us. We wipe off against, nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. In 11.2, so he said to them, when you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. In 11.17, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them. In other words, they thought that the kingdom of God was going to arrive immediately get into Jerusalem. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. A house divided against a house falls. He's been talking about the kingdom. He's talking about people repenting to enter the kingdom. That's the running theme. The church is part of the kingdom. But not all of the kingdom or the kingdom itself. It's important. The kingdom of God is present as the theocracy. The rule of God's immediate direction over his people. Um, Israel was a theocracy as you know. Uh, ruled by God through the divinely chosen men such as Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and so on and so forth. The high priest. 
the Jews saw themselves as God's people and they saw the age in two different stages. The present age, fallen, corrupt, and the age to come, the millennial kingdom. Now, the kingdom of God is kind of like an eclipse. It's on earth here. When Jesus came, the kingdom of God arrived and it is constantly moving forward. We're getting closer. And then when it gets to a final eclipse, the rapture happens. And then we come back in the second coming. And the kingdom of God will have arrived. Jesus brings in the kingdom. So the kingdom is present and yet to come. Now, Jesus offered a theocracy by announcing the kingdom of God, which the Jews were waiting for. The restoration of David's throne by the rule and reign of Messiah. Second Samuel 7 and many other portions are clearly stated. Now, Jesus uses the term kingdom, Basilia, referring to the royal power, the kingly domain, uh, knowing the Jews understood it. The scriptures were given to them. Now, some make a distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. As the kingdom of God, the rule of man, uh, the rule of God in man's heart, and the kingdom of heaven, the overall rule. There may be a slide, but they're used synonymously, so I don't really make a big difference on it. Now, after the resurrection, as you know, Jesus taught for 40 days to the apostles about the things of the kingdom. And it was at that time they said in Acts 1, 3, and 6, Lord, will you at that time restore the kingdom of Israel? Even after the resurrection, they still had the Jewish mind. They thought the kingdom would be established now. Like that kid on the bench. Now, of course, now, of course, no. Sit down. Now. I mean, they were ready for it. Now, due to the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, the kingdom of God was present, but again yet to come. Ultimately, in the fulfillment, when Jesus returns and sets up the kingdom. Now, notice also the kingdom of God in the age of grace is portrayed as being infiltrated, according to Jesus, by two parables. The first parable likens the kingdom of God in the church age to a mustard seed. Listen to his words. It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. There is no punchline. In both of these parables, usually parables have a punchline. But they both clearly are said to be a comparison to the kingdom of God and the age of grace. Okay? So by nature of a parable, they compare a contrast. These compare, and that's the literal punchline. The question is whether it is a positive or a negative comparison. We must first note that the mustard seed is an herb. And is in a form of a bush, very small. It's the smallest of seed, Mark 4.31 tells us. So you have to crush it up to get that benefit out of it. But the mustard seed will grow at times abnormally large, 8, 10, even 12 feet. Consequently, the birds confuse what is a bush for a tree and they nest in it. No bird makes a nest in a bush. It's too low. The animals get too as young. And so when this bush becomes abnormally large, it's confused for a tree. And the birds nest in it. Then for the proper interpretation of the parable of the mustard seed, we must also interpret it in its context of this section and chapter. Lest we give it a meaning contrary to its intention. Jesus has just preached the gospel 
and has been preaching the gospel that requires repentance to escape God's judgment or sinners will perish. Chapter 12, verse 1 to chapter 13, verse 17, it's very, very, very clear. Jesus clearly answers disciples directly that few will be saved in increments, not in numbers. In 23 and 24, we'll get to that. Jesus revealed his people Israel would ultimately reject him and not repent. Luke 13, 34 and 35 will tell us that. The context of this chapter is negative. Rejection and unrepentance. The next thing for the proper interpretation is to ask what do the birds mean or represent? Birds in scripture always represent evil. Always. The parallel passages in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Mark, the other two, follow the parable of the sower of the seed. And Jesus said, he interpreted for us that the birds are evil, calls them Satan. They devoured the seed of the gospel preached, Matthew 13, 4, 32, Mark 4, 4, 31 and 32, and we've already seen in Luke 8, 5, the birds snatched up, harpassled the seed from the hard ground. Now, the parable of the sower is a key parable for all other parables. Listen to Mark 4.13. Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand, listen, all parables. In other words, whenever we come to a parable, we know it's going to contrast uh, or compare. And that it has a punchline. But then we also run it through this parable of the sower or the kingdom parables in Matthew 13. Because there Jesus gave the kingdom parables, things that were hidden from the foundation of the world. And he gives very specific interpretation to certain things. Consistency. Therefore the birds represent the evil men who will be within the church by an abnormal large growth during the kingdom of God. There was a point in time when this is going to happen. Jesus clearly states. In verse 14, the ruler that objected to the healing of the woman in the synagogue... He was a bird. <laughs> There's always been buzzers in the church. Corrupt men. They will increase as we get closer to the Lord. The church will become corrupt. We already see a lot of that today. To interpret the mustard seed to mean the church will grow to be large and influential. And that the church will bring in the kingdom is to contradict what proceeds and what follows. All the rest is they're unrepentant. They're rejecting him. This is the liberal interpretation. Sometimes proclaimed as kingdom theology or dominion theology. Channel 40 is into it a lot. The positive confession people. I reject this interpretation. It contradicts everything in context. The second parable. Verse 20 through 21. Likens the kingdom of God in the church age to leaven. And he said... To what shall I like in the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. The use of leaven in the Bible is always, always symbolic of evil. Even in the figurative sense right here. Always evil. The first time it's mentioned is uh, the celebration of Passover in Egypt. Prohibiting them the emblem of, uh, uh, of leaven. Taking it out of their houses. 
in Exodus 12:15, and then they would follow the Feast of Unleavened Bread, 15th to the 22nd of October. Now, Jesus just warned the disciples in chapter 12, verse 1, about the leaven of the Pharisees, which was the sin of hypocrisy. There again, it's sin, evil. Paul put it this way to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 through 8. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, the old sin lifestyle, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Very clearly, leaven is evil. Therefore, now the woman has to represent evil also. False teaching or religion. And this is confirmed through scripture. Zechariah 5, 7 through 11 depicts false religion by two women with a stork-like wings and another woman in the basket and it's picked up and taken to Shinar, Babylon, the false religion. And it's called, this is wickedness. Whenever a woman is portrayed in scripture in opposition to God, it's false religion and a woman is always depicted as that. This is confirmed in the parallel passage of the kingdom parables. Uh, Matthew uh, 13.33 says, The kingdom of heaven is like an leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. Confirmation. Same thing. This is warned against in the book of Revelation. Listen to Revelation 2.20. Nevertheless, I have few things against you because you allow the woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality, anything sacrificed to idols. A woman's more emotional, a woman's more, it's easier to be led astray. It's simple. Not because you're more, less intelligent, but because of being more emotional. Doesn't mean you're inferior, doesn't mean you're evil. It means that we are totally different individuals. Now, the meal of bread represents the Word of God. Leaven rots, causing bread to rise. The proper interpretation of the leaven in the meal is one of false teaching and doctrine introduced into the church to corrupt God's Word. Now, we can clearly see this today. We see it in the past, but we see it in, in great measures today. This interpretation is consistent with the context and the two parables of double warning. The mustard seed and the meal and the leaven. So it's emphatic. Double means emphatic. Great danger. To interpret it as a positive growth of influence would contradict the mustard seed and what precedes and what follows it is a unifying context. Remember, Jesus is experiencing growing opposition and hostility as he's headed down to Jerusalem. It's like Rob Bell, one of the chief spokesmen for the emergent church, in his book, Love Wins, where he says that everybody ends up in heaven at the end, and there's no hell. Really? They're the emerging guys, McLaren and all these guys, redefining Christianity. They do not believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of the word of God. The seeker-friendly and emergent church movement avoid preaching about sin, repentance, and doctrine, as we said, seeking to appeal to the people on the basis of love and acceptance. These are the culturally driven, socially and theologically reformed, politically correct churches who compromise the Word of God. They're lukewarm by Scripture. The church of Laodicea, the church of Laodicea and Philadelphia are side by side until the Lord removes the church of Philadelphia, the one with little strength. Revelation 3.16 says, So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. 
Wow, that's Jesus speaking. We see incredible amounts of false doctrine being taught and embraced by the church today. Uh, let me just give you some stuff on this guy. He writes uh, against the emergent church, Eric Barger. He says, uh, quote, The emergent church movement takes its name from the idea that culture has changed. And a new church should emerge in response. It apparently grew out of the discussion group inside the yoga leadership network in the 1990s. The emergence... Christianity should be, he says, listen to him, experience over reason, spirituality over doctrine and absolutes, images over words, feelings over truth, earthly justice over salvation, social action over eternity. Second Peter 2, 1 through 2 says, but there were also false prophets among the people, even there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. Here's the key, listen. And many, not few, many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Jesus warned about the corruption of the church. Are you part of the church of Jesus or are you part of the church of the world? Only you can make that decision. Notice secondly, comes the proportion comprising the church in 22 through 30. In 22 and 23, the Lord Jesus was questioned about the number of those to be saved. The occasion, and when he uh, went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. Jesus began his journey after Peter's confession of Caesarea Philippi, that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Remember, we have the line of demarcation in chapter 9, verse 51, as Jesus heads to Jerusalem, walking under the shadow of the cross, six months. Jesus is walking through these cities and villages, teaching, uh, not in a straight route, he's making his way down. And uh, he's teaching the people about the kingdom of God by the word of God. And his focus is repentance. And Jesus is walking, again, under the shadow of the cross. He understands his time is short. He's going to state it for us as we move along. Now, the teaching opportunity presented a question to Jesus from a disciple. It says, then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? The question is not asking a specific number to be saved. Instead, it's asking if the amount of those to be saved is greater than those lost. Without any doubt, it had to do with the great multitudes that were following Jesus constantly and coming out. Were there more believers than unbelievers among the crowds? The disciples certainly were no different than you and I today. The Lord Jesus noticed response to the question in the end of 23 through 30. At the end of 23 and 24, Jesus answered the question indirectly. And he said to them, he changed it from the one to the them. Strive to enter through the narrow gate for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Underline, will not be able. Jesus spoke directly to the disciples, them, admonishing them to strive to enter through the narrow gate. The word strive, as you know, we've touched it many times, is an athletic term from the gymnasium games. Uh, one who strives, agonizes to overcome. Forget about how many are going to be saved. Literally, Jesus is saying, he says, are you saved? You're ministering to somebody, so we always change the subject to somebody else to divert it from us, right? Well, how about the pygmies? I mean, forget the pygmies. I'm talking to you. 
By the way, when the pygmies heard it, they repented. Okay? But people, would they do this? No. The word describes a strenuous zeal contending to obtain something. Mark, you notice personal responsibility here to respond. An imperative present durative tense. Constant. This response is not by man's corrupt nature. Working to be saved. As Calvinists would accuse us of. But rather enabled by the Spirit through conviction and prompting the heart to be saved. It's through the gospel when we hear it. The agonizing is to enter through the narrow gate. Open by hearing the gospel. When you hear the gospel, God opens the door. God turns on the light for you to enter in. The gate is entrance to heaven. It speaks of salvation. The narrowness speaks about the limited and specific provision and time to enter heaven. This is by the preaching about the atoning work of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who alone can forgive the sins of a sinner. So whenever the gospel is preached, God opens the door for that non-believer to hear and understand they're a sinner under God's wrath. And God is able to forgive them and give them eternal life. That's the open door. It isn't by our own, it isn't by people who aren't hearing the gospel. People say, I don't believe in God. That, that's not a rejection of God. It's when God opens the door, when they hear the gospel and they reject it. Now their responsibilities are great. You understand? That's the open door. The many seeking to enter in, notice, and not able are those who do not respond to the window time to repent. The inability to enter is because you haven't taken advantage of the open door, the time. They may also seek to enter other ways, apart from repentance, which God cannot allow. They will not be able. Window times, you know what they are. They're only open for a set time. Opportunity to go to school, opportunity to travel, opportunity to this or that, you fill in the blank. And once it's gone, it's gone. This is salvation that he's talking about. Look at 25 to 28. Jesus illustrates now this window time of repentance by the Jews as time sensitive and limited. The context of this, Jesus is speaking to the Jews first of all. In principle, it'll apply to everybody thereafter. But he's talking about the Jew here. God the Father is the one who initiates salvation. Listen, when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at that door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us, and he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. The running theme and thread here is repentance in view of opportunity. This shut door can take place in one's life by a continuous rejection of the gospel, which indicates ultimate judgment. This certainly takes place after death if there's been no repentance. The Jews were barred from entering here due to not responding to the call to salvation by God. So would all people thereafter. He's talking about the Jew right here but also by attempting to enter in an unbiblical way, out of time and unbiblical. When it comes to entering the gates of heaven, are you in the right line?
That's the simple truth from today's study by Pastor Xavier Reese. And you can hear this message again anytime online by simply selecting today's date at the radio listings link you'll find at calvarychapelpasadena.com. But there's still much more to come right here next time as well. However, in the meantime, you can always pick up your own copy of this message. And the title to ask for is The Kingdom of God and the Church. It's available on CD as usual for only $4. So once again, you'll be asking for the message titled The Kingdom of God and the Church or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for mentioning the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This helps us track the effectiveness of this ministry in your area. And then join us for more Simple Truths next time with Pastor Xavier Reese. Hope to see you then. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com